Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Danielle Kurtzleib, and I cover politics. And today we're doing something a little different. It is a scary and confusing time right now, ever since the attack on the U.S. Capitol last week. Here on the podcast, we've been trying to make sense of this violent and painful moment. And for this special episode, we're taking that on through our brand new book club. It's a chance for our listeners to connect over books about politics. We read them together and discuss them in our podcast Facebook group. And our first pick is particularly, perhaps painfully, timely. We chose Carlos Losada's What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era. Carlos is nonfiction book critic at the Washington Post and has won a Pulitzer for that work, and as a result of it, has read 150 books about the Trump administration. This book is his attempt, through all of those books, to document how we, as a country, as a world, process the Trump presidency. Carlos, it is so good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Very quick housekeeping before we get going. First of all, we are recording this on Tuesday, and by the time you hear this, any number of things may have happened (laughs) in this country, uh, particularly an impeachment vote in the House. So uh, there are a few of those things we won't be able to address here, but... Let's just start, Carlos, by talking about current events. There was something I saw you tweet after the attack that I really wanted to ask you about. You said, has Trump changed America or has he helped reveal it more clearly? Would you consider that a main theme, the main theme of the books that you read during the Trump presidency? It is, but it's probably only a theme that I really was able to articulate for myself in in hindsight. And part of the way that you see that theme materialize is in this constant refrain of, we're better than this. Uh, this is not who we are, right? There's a sort of self-confidence in that refrain that may not always be be warranted. It's something that came up in very dark moments of the Trump presidency, whether it was Charlottesville, whether it was the family separation policy at the border, and whether it was the events of January Sixth, it's both this lament and this vote of confidence as if what's happening now is an aberration. It's, it's a deviation from a long-held American norm. I think, though, that it doesn't have to be an either-or kind of question. The act of revealing itself changes America. Right. Well, let's zoom out then, because we had a lot of questions from our listeners, our people in our Facebook group. Again, if you're listening right now, you can join that group at n.pr slash politics group. You write quite a bit about this, the economic anxiety versus racial resentment argument that raged throughout the Trump administration about, okay, why do people support Trump? Is it X or Y? Mm-hmm. And you note how, in your opinion, the best books on the topic don't make it either or, they combine both. Like the book Identity Politics, which talks about racialized economics. Um, Why do you think it was hard for people to hold both of those ideas in their head at once or to meld them? I think that's part and parcel with how people have viewed politics in this period overall. Uh, Trump became this utterly dividing force, really almost as if there were nothing else, right? Like, you know, there's the resistance and there's the base. You know, you're pro-Trump or you're against him. And that's a fine dividing line, but it's certainly not the only dividing line in, mm-hmm. in American politics, but it, it, it seemed to overpower everything else. And the economic anxiety versus racial prejudice argument became part of that. If you were sympathetic to uh, Trump and his supporters and um, were willing um, 
to buy into this more uh, economic argument. Look, people are suffering. People are having a hard time. That's why, that's why the economic populism argument is, is attractive to them. Versus, you know, if you, if you think it's just rank prejudice and, and racism, um, then, you know, you think that the first argument's a cop-out, right? That, that you know, that, right. that's not it at all. Um, and so I think that that became a dividing line that was a pro versus anti-Trump dividing line. Right. Uh, well, I want to change uh, the direction we're looking at now because you, you, of course, wrote a lot about conservatism, the Trump movement. Uh, but there was also a, you have a really fascinating chapter on, for lack of a better word, resistance lit, resistance books. Um, mm-hmm. You you had a bit of you had some frustration with it. One memorable quote you write: "Simply because Trump's moral compass is broken, does not mean yours points unerringly north." Is what you're saying there that a singular focus on opposing Trump kept some of these writers from greater self-reflection? How would you put it? The initial response um, to the Trump campaign in 2016 and to Trump's election. Uh, coming from the sort of progressive left, and again, this is purely through the prism of the books, was deeply emotional and and understandably so. It was you know anger and fear and a sort of retrenching into uh, your own silos. Mm-hmm. Um, I refer to these as the you know how awful I felt on election night books, you know, which just right. kept coming out again and again, and there were largely collections of essays and. You know, when you have an opponent who seems to be espousing all these, you know, truly retrograde positions and, 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 and values, you know, it's easy to believe that simply moving in the direct opposite direction is the right thing. And so mm-hmm. Trump, in a sense, enabled the move toward more sort of purist or extreme positions on, on that left that may not necessarily be where the majority of Democratic voters want to go. But, you know, in the face of a dire situation and dire opponent, um, it's easy to, to tell yourself that that's where you need to go. Um, right. You know, when, when you have a, an administration that is separating children from their families at the border, it's easy and tempting and maybe rational to think that, well, you know, the most open version of immigration policy that I can think of is the right thing, because that's the opposite of what Trump is doing. And that may or may not be the case. Right. There are a lot of books sort of in the moment that come out one after another during the administration from, say, Bob Woodward, some of your colleagues at The Post, from journalists, people who are on the White House or campaign campaign beat day after day. Mm-hmm. Where do those fit in the universe of Trump books? And do they matter in the moment? Are they a historical record? Are they useful in looking at after the fact? I do think that they um, they are invaluable for the historical record, um, and I think in a sense you almost have to look at them collectively. They 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 build on one another. But in some ways, Fire and Fury, which was the first big one by by Michael Wolff, set right. set a template for some of these books, whereby it became this contest for like who had the craziest, you know, oh my god, anecdote about what Trump had said or done, you know, like he asked if he could have a moat with alligators at the border, right? Or people right. were stealing, you know, treaties off his desk or, you know, or, or important documents off his desk. 
Um, you know, and it's all this like, ah, I can't believe this is happening. And it, if you focus so much on, on that kind of story, which again is, is important, is, is part of the historical record, um, you know, you, you may spend less time, relatively speaking, on, um, well, what are the big consequences of, of what we're seeing here, of all this mayhem in the White House? And so, you know, books like Susan Hennessy and Benjamin Wittes' book, um, Unmaking the Presidency, that sure. try to get at that, that deeper question of, well, okay, yes, Trump is breaking all these norms. You know, if there's one thing we've learned, it's that norms matter, right? Um, but what does that mean? Where do these norms come from? You know, what, what's the impact when they're undermined? Some of the best books of the Trump era are not about Trump at all. Um, and they reveal so much about the moment because they're not beholden to the moment. They can afford to think more broadly. And so I read, I tried to read, you know, all different kinds of books, but I, I put together and sort of an, an epilogue to my book, the, the dozen or so books that I think were most helpful to me personally. And I think you end up seeing a preponderance more of, of the latter kind of books, of the, right. of the books that, that, that try to tell a bigger picture beyond the, the day-to-day minutia. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll talk about whether there's a path out of partisanship. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, developing solutions to support strong families and communities to help ensure a brighter future for America's children. More information is available at aecf.org. The news moves fast. Listen to the NPR News Now podcast to keep up. We update stories as they evolve every hour. So no matter when you listen, you get the news as close to live as possible on your schedule. Subscribe to or follow the NPR News Now podcast. And we're back. Uh, We had multiple questions in our Facebook group also about closing the partisan divide, about polarization. And, you know, as a person who has read, like like I've said a few times, whole spectrum of books, Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for someone who's trying to understand the opposite side? How much value is there in a conservative person trying to read a book by a liberal politician or activist or vice versa? I think there's enormous value in that. I, I, I wish that, that more uh, readers, more citizens would, would do that. Recently, I, I reviewed five books together that, that deal with with political polarization. Um, they include um, a book by David French called Divided We Fall. He's, he's more on the conservative side. Pete Buttigieg's book, Trust, is, is about this. Um, Ezra Klein's book, Why We're Polarized, is about this. Mm-hmm. One of the books that, that a lot of them cite is a book by Liliana Mason, a political scientist who um, wrote a book called um, Uncivil Agreement. And it's, it's funny what, what she and, well, it's not funny, it's kind of tragic, but what, what she and, and some of these other writers say is that what we need is a sort of galvanizing crisis sometimes that can help bring people together in, in some way. Um, and of course, we just had one. We're in the middle of one uh, with, with, with the COVID crisis. And that itself became a dividing line. That, be, that itself became a culture war. Right. So um, there's not a ton of hope in in some of these in some of these books, even as they attempt to to chronicle what those what those dividing lines are. Mm-hmm. Just sort of as as a side question to that, do you think that your position in reading absorbing all of this makes you more or less hopeful than your 
your average American about uh, about how much we can overcome this kind of divide we have in this country? Well, I I would. I would very much put myself in the in the average American category. I don't think that that being a book critic makes me makes me you know, um, okay. you know puts me in some kind of different different stuff. And and I'm Your only average... very recently an, an an American citizen too. I'm new to this, but I think that you know I don't I don't know what the counterfactual is. I don't know how I would have felt if I hadn't you know if I had just lived through the Trump presidency you know being a movie critic or something or doing something different. Um, but I. Uh, I, I don't think it's given me a greater sense of, of optimism. And I know that's, that's, that's a bummer. Um, and people always try to have these conversations and at the end say like, you know, but, but, you know, but it's all going to work out, right? Like, tell us, you know, <laughs> tell, tell me about the rabbits, George, right? Tell me how and, it and, ends. So, and yeah. so, and so, um, you know, but, but I, I see the books that are attempting to find those, um, those kind of avenues out of this. Um, and, you know, they often are more persuasive at showing us why we're stuck than at really showing the, the way out. The, the only thing that I can, I can think of that has given me some, I, I, I don't know if it's optimism as, as much as just kind of understanding, is that there are many books that have come out in this period that show that a lot of the bitter fights that we've been having in the Trump era are just ever present in the American experience. That, it, that may be more sobering than encouraging, um, mm-hmm. but a book like America for Americans by the historian Erica Lee is a book that shows how alongside the tradition of America as a nation of immigrants is a, an equally strong tradition of xenophobia and rejection of outsiders. Mm-hmm. A book like Jill Lepore's These Truths is a book that shows how failing to live up to our self-evident truths of the Declaration um, is, is a constant feature of America, um, is, a, is a constant shortcoming, how, how America is that battle to live up to, to principles and often to fail to live up to principles. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense... Um, you know, I, I feel like this is our turn uh, as opposed to feeling like somehow we're in this, you know, utterly uncharted uh, place. Right. Um, you know, these, these battles are, are ever present in the American story. And maybe that's as optimistic as I can get. Yeah. Well, on that semi-hopeful note, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. Uh, this has been such a wonderful conversation, Carlos. Thank you. It's an honor to kick off your your book club. I can't wait to see which book you pick next. Uh, Thank you. Neither can I. (laughs) Well, again, uh, listeners, please join our Facebook group at n.pr slash politics group to see more of our discussion with Carlos about this book and so you can be there and ready when we announce our next book. Until then, I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, and thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.